0: Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist, Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, the search for planets beyond the solar system, and a Forbes.com science contributor.
1: Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to Episode 11 of Cosmic Controversy. Today's guest is Edward Guinan a longtime professor of astrophysics and planetary science at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. Guinan is internationally known as a pioneer in astronomy and space science for his astrophysical analysis of nearby stars and extrasolar planets. By comparing our Sun with other solar-type stars in different stages of their evolution, Guinan has enabled astronomers to better understand our own Sun's past and long-term future. Guinan has also spent considerable time in finding and characterizing potentially habitable earth-like planets circling nearby stars. But most recently, he was quoted widely on the red supergiant star Betelgeuse's dimming controversy. And in case you are wondering, he is in fact related to the namesake for the Whoopi Goldberg Star Trek character Gynen, the bartender and hostess of the Starship Enterprises' Ten Forward Lounge. Today he joins us from Pennsylvania. Ed, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks,
0: Bruce. It's great to be here.
1: So, before we get started uh, on the Betelgeuse controversy, which just this morning is heating up, please tell us about your association with the
0: Star Trek series. The character Guinan on uh, the New Generation show uh, is modeled after uh, Texas Guinan, and she's uh, she was a notor- she was an actress. Um, an entrepreneur. Uh, and she, her most famous uh, part of her life was in the 1920s when she ran speakeasies. These were nightclubs in New York where during Prohibition you could get drinks and gambling and things like that. And I really didn't know much about her until the internet came along I decided to check her out. And, and it looks like she is related as far as I can figure out. She's my grandfather, Guinan uh, cousin. My Sing grandfather to- and her were cousins. Oh, okay, That's as best I can do with it. Our most famous expression was Hello, sucker. Come in and put your wallet on the bar. That <laughs> <laughs> so was her shtick. So her, her but she was very, very well known to Gene Roddenberry and older, like um, people my grandfather's age and a little bit older than that. So, Gene, she was uh, pretty famous in the 1920s, 30s, you know. As a pinup, that's probably where he he came across, sir. And but that that that's where the name that's where it came from. That's why uh, Whoopi Goldberg, who plays Guinan, uh works in a bar.
1: Anyway, let's get on th- to Betelgeuse uh, because uh, the uh, it's a star that anyone can see without the need for any sort of magnification from their own backyards. And uh, just this morning, NASA released a press release noting that Hubble observations show that the unexpected dimming uh, most recently was caused by an immense amount of hot material ejected into space, forming a dust cloud that blocked starlight coming from Betelgeuse's surface. They suggest the uh, dust cloud formed when superhot plasma unleashed from an upwelling of a large convec- convection cell on the star's surface and it passed through the hot atmosphere to the colder outer layers where it cooled and formed dust grains. And then by April 2020, the star had returned to normal brightness. There's a paper uh, appearing in the Astrophysical Journal on these uh, on this most recent assertion. So, what are your thoughts?
0: Well, I actually am on I'm on the paper. Uh, oh, okay. I, I,
1: I, the, I, I didn't realize it. I,
0: I haven't even seen the paper. I didn't even realize. It. Well, I'm in the uh, the at all <laughs> Okay. On, on, I uh, contributed to the uh, photometry and helping interpret it. Yeah, it's 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 uh, that's the claim uh, that she she had a really good um, she had time on Hubble um, six visits last year before anything happened. You know, she had had this scheduled before Betelgeuse was doing anything, and uh, she was lucky. You know, to have that already scheduled. Who they was the, who was the first author? Who dim. was the first author? So she's hmm? who's the
1: first author on the the, the lead uh, on Andrea Duprey. Andrea Dupre. Okay,
0: and the paper's out out today you oh. can get it on astro ph okay so and there's a big press release also is out that, Na- that nasa wrote it's very nice so i assume
1: since you're on the paper you concur with the results
0: no not exactly <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> right <laughs> well, i concur with some of the results i mean it the the paper yes the press release says mystery solved that's how it begins and i go oh well, wow. and uh because i don't think the mystery is is solved um the tie-in is that uh, she saw um, strong emission uh, lines in the fall uh, from the star surface. And this is when the star was at maximum expansion velocity. And sometimes you, you get these. You get these in Cepheids and you get these in Myra stars. Um, so the tie-in is that, yeah, the lines appeared and they were strong. The, the connection to the dust cloud is not, you know, it's not certain. It's just that it's... It, it, it was. It happened in the southern hemisphere, and that's where the sphere image. There's an image of Betelgeuse, a beautiful one taken by the VLT with sphere, shows a dark area in the southern hemisphere of the star. So she tied the the um, the magnesium emission lines that were seen, and they were pretty strong. They were like two times normal. Uh, with assuming that it ejected material and that material, you know, got in the line, cooled down uh, in time to dust and gotten in the line, line of sight. All that could be true, but it's not what I would say conclusive. It's, it's a good idea. It's a good uh, theory, hypothesis for what for what what happened, but it isn't the only one. You know how these things are. I had it happen to me. The, uh, the, the press releases are, 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 are hyped, so you'll get, get get to read them. I remember having a press release and every time it was wishy-washy or had a caveat that was stricken, stricken out, removed from the from the press release. That's why it goes mystery solved. I would say mystery may be solved, but that's not the way press releases go. So that's the story. It was a very, you know, it was a fabulous. She could, um, Hubble could um, uh, resolve the star. The star is pretty big. The star is uh, 45 milliard seconds across, which is large for a star. Only one of the star has a bigger diameter, uh, angular diameter. So they put the, the spectra, they took spectra across and they saw that on the southeast side uh, there was a, a strong uh, uh, enhancement of these emission lines that come from the chromosphere. So that part's all good, and uh, it, co- it it coincided with the maximum expansion of the star. So it's nothing. It's I don't think the mystery solved, but this is one good explanation of what, of what happened. Now, what but do you mean others. by the,
1: the maximum expansion
0: of the star? Well, the star pulsates, or uh, or expands and and contracts or in this case it may have been a super granule uh, the star has giant convective cells um, theoretically and observationally uh, i mean the sun has what are called granules mm-hmm. the granules on the sun is where the, they're really the bubbles of hot plasma uh, coming up from the sun's uh, interior that are like in a three hundred miles across and lasts for five, five minutes and they sink down. That's how the heat's transported. When you have a gigantic star like Betelgeuse, which is, you know, four AU in in uh, radius, uh, you can have large, you can scale up these um, these uh, convective cells. I call them supercells. And Martin Sorsfield, who who did early work on this in the 1970s, called them super granules. So uh, she's saying that uh, one of the one of these cells um, was extra strong and it produced a shock front or wave that you know produced the magnesium the heating that produced magnesium and K uh lines the emission lines, and then this part's not sure. You don't see the material blowing out, nor do you see. Uh, large uh, Doppler shifts, that part's inferred. Mm-hmm. The observations are solid, I mean, you did see the lines there, and uh, the emission lines, and they were weaker in other other phases. But te- uh, The other but explanations... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to
1: say, interestingly enough, uh, this does not... It, it invokes an astrophysical origin of the dimming, but not really, because technically... It's the dust, and not something going on internally in the star that's causing this uh, dimming. Is that right? Uh, sort of. Uh, yeah,
0: if <laughs> okay. you want to look at that 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 way, that that I mean, there was a large uh, expansion taking place, and so the star the star is upwelling, you know, which is unusually large, then produced the dust and made it dim. But that is that isn't the only alternative. Um, uh, I mean, I've been observing the star since I was a child. <laughs> since nineteen eightyish, 81. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of know what photometry, and you know, I've seen the photometry of it. And I even, you know, I go back uh, to, the, to the older data. Uh, it has a a five, a six-year period. And, and if you call them periods, they're not exactly period. They're not exactly strict periodicities. And a 420-day one. Uh, the the thing that took place last Took place last year, uh, was tracking the the 420 day period. I had it predicted to happen in the middle of February, you know. But I didn't know, you know, it was going to be that that deep. The 420 day period is not sure where that com- comes from. It could be the lifetime of a super granule. They end up being lasting, you know, when they come up and they dim back. Back down. Uh-huh. That might be the average dynamical lifetime of these things, or it could be part of the star pulsating. And what? So, do you,
1: and so the the four hundred twenty day period is simply a dimming period. That, it, what, oh no, it's,
0: it's like a pulsation. A period. pulsation period. The star. So this that's thing is major actually, so this period thing, like, of the like star. It's four hundred. Sometimes it's four hundred days. Sometimes it's four thirty. That's what you see when you look at the light curves and mm-hmm. back in time. You see this periodicity it's usually two tenths to three tenths of a magnitude Mm -hmm. when the great the so-called great dimming took took place it was over a magnitude so it was much much larger okay Um, and that's due to i mean that's due to uh, we think it's due to one of these super granules that came up or you know the stars filled with these they're the size of an au meaning they're big uh, so now the so size of an AU, uh, an Earth-Sun distance, at, at, and you and, yeah, and, and, the size, and, the distance between the Earth and the Sun. That's the size, the scale of these um, these phenomena. These and granules. you mentioned
1: that the radius of the or the diameter of this uh, supergiant, the uh, red uh, supergiant is four, four
0: AU. Yeah, four, four, four times one hundred thousand sun units. Uh, uh,
1: uh, so in other words, uh, uh, four times the distance but, uh, of the Earth to the Sun.
0: Yeah, the star's diameter, the star's radius is four astronomical units or 100,000 um, sun uh, radii. Good so it's gosh. huge. Yeah, huge. And new things are of the order of one to two A astronomical units. You know, So they're, they're big phenomena. And they've been seen previously on interferometry. You see blotches on the star. And then the star is asymmetrical. Sometimes part of the star is sticking out in one part and not not the other. Probably driven by these uh, these gigantic uh, bubbles.
1: And so, ju- uh, just for context uh, for the listener, if uh, you were to place replace the uh, Betelgeuse uh, with our sun, the uh, exterior fringes of the of the star's atmosphere would extend out to what uh, beyond almost the, Jupiter. Almost Jupiter. Incredible.
0: Yeah. Between uh, the asteroid belt and Jupiter, yeah, huge. (laughs) Right. Okay. So one um, of the largest stars in the sky.
1: So um, I quote you as I quote you in Forbes: uh, the star is located some uh, 722 light years away in Orion and has likely been a red supergiant for as long as 100,000 years, uh, or uh, some eight to nine million years ago.
0: Yeah, it, it spent its its initial lifetime on the main sequence. In fact, in 95% of its lifetime was as a B star, a B5, B4. Right. Maybe it was 15, 20 solar masses then. And then it evolved. It, it ceased uh, hydrogen to helium burning in its core and then shot over in the HR diagram toward the red side expanding in size until it got to... Uh, where it is now, which is in the red supergiant section of the of the Hertzsprung Russell diagram,
1: and then uh, I actually uh, broke the story in Forbes that uh, Betelgeuse had stopped its dimming based on information that you gave me back in February. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, we have the whole, we have we have observations until last last night, so we we have the whole picture here, right? Yeah, it stopped. It, it dimmed. It went down a one. It went down to one point six magnitudes. It usually is about point four. Mid February, and then start to come up again. It came up rather fast, and at the end of April, beginning of May, it was 0.3 magnitudes. Right, the average magnitude is 0.45. And then we didn't know. It goes into the. It, it moves into the, you know, the glow of the, the glow, the glare of the sun. So
1: what would uh, uh, So explain to the listener and to me what uh, what cause? Why would the dimming necessarily mean that the star was about to go supernova? What about
0: the dimming? Uh, would 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 make it's you think? It's not sure what. Okay, going back to theory again. Supernova. No one has ever observed a supernova days, weeks, months, years before one one went off. The only case is maybe 1987A, uh, where the supernova was a uh, the, the progenitor was a, a supergiant uh, B star. So it's it's not really observationally known what happens. One has been observed a half hour before but never weeks or months. And and by theory, um, it's not sure what whether there would be any changes at all. It just blows. Or there's one paper out by a supernova expert who I looked up last year when this was going on, like this was a like a, a frenzy. Uh, Jim Fuller at Cal, Caltech, a theorist, said that there might be a dimming uh, a year or so before the explosion. And, um, so that's, you know, during that stage, uh, if it's that far along, it, 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 it's burning um, oxygen to silicon. I mean, it only takes six months to burn through that. So that's, that's where it came from. I would look for, uh, I mean, if the star has been behaving for the last 180 years, you know, in a fashion that is not remarkable. Other supergiants, red supergiants do the same, same thing. So it was like business as usual. You know, they, it wasn't. It didn't stick out as an unusual red supergiant until the dimming. When the dimming took took place, uh, I couldn't find any other red supergiants that actually did did that or did did it that um, that quickly and so, so deep deeply. So one idea is that w- once the star gets close to being a supernova, its outer behavior may change. You know, it may no longer keep the same pulsational light variations that it had previously so no one knows whether that's true or not it's just that that's a chance that that could happen there could be some indication a year a month a week you know before it happens and that's where the idea that's where um that's why it caught people's interest because you really don't know what it's going to do a month before it happens or a year before it happens but there is some theoretical basis that it might it might change uh, the uh, characteristic variations in light could change and things like that because there's things going on inside inside the core the major one that I, I found like um, you know it, it spends helium to carbon takes seven hundred thousand seven hundred thousand years that that's what we think it's doing but then. It, Going when it burns, the out its carbon, uh, carbon the oxygen lasts about six hundred years, and then oxygen to silicon is six months, and on this last day, it's converting the silicon to iron. That takes one day just to, to have that happen, and that's that's the end. The core, uh, the iron core uh, collapses in a quarter of a second. So when it's changing these states, and I see the one the one I remark on, is when it goes from oxygen to silicon. There could be a change in the uh, in the nuclear energy output in the core, which c- could translate into disturbing, you know, the convective output of, of the star changing it a little bit. So that it could have a different pulsational character or a different light character. I don't know. I mean, this is theoretical and uh it's never been been observed so you don't know what will happen uh, one of the other uh, super i contacted super specialists when i was getting uh no calls and emails about this because i didn't know I, I so i called some i called around and said what do you think would happen and uh the one that did answer me was jim was jim fuller he said yeah there could be there is something that happens like 30 minutes before or an hour before Uh, and that's when the core is, is imploding, um, when it's changing from iron to, uh, neutrons. Um, it, this is, this is what happens. That core implodes really quickly and that sends out a shock, which propagates through the star, but it has to go 4AU to get out. And, uh, that, what happens is that it takes it, um, it takes it like two, three hours for the outside of the star to know what has happened, you know, that the that core has, has collapsed. And then for a brief, like 15, 20 minutes, uh, it's called outbreak. And that's when the, the shock reaches the surface of, of the star. And that's been seen. It's been seen only by two people, two, well, one's in a person. The uh, Kepler satellite saw it and a guy in S- South American amateur astronomer saw this really brief rare event where you see the breakout of the shock wave. It pops up it goes up a few magnitudes and then it goes back down and then the whole star the whole the shock reaches the whole heats the whole outer atmosphere of the star and it blows and that's when you see it get really bright.
1: And you're saying the Kepler uh, Space Telescope saw
0: Yeah, saw it this accidentally w- saw, yeah, it looked at uh, tens of thousands of supernova um, extra, in, in ex- galaxies, extragalactic like su- extra hmm? supernovas, su- extragalactic supernova. extragalactic. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. And by chance, uh, they saw uh, this phenomenon happen. Okay, uh, it, ha- it happens during atomic bomb explosions. And so this, uh, um, so this would be a core collapse
1: supernova. Uh,
0: yeah, okay. rather than a type type one, which is uh, a white dwarf, and just give us out. a
1: parenthetical definition of this uh, type two uh, core collapse uh, supernova.
0: T- that's it. A type type two supernova is when it develops an iron core, iron core um, uh, implodes, making neutrons, yeah, because, and giving out b- because huge amounts
1: of of, of of neutrinos because the star has run out of fuel, basically. It?
0: Yes, it has. Okay suddenly it wasn't expecting it see all of its life it was able to live on by when it got when it burned up hydrogen it went to helium and it burned its carbon and it got oxygen so it was like breezing along and then it really didn't know that iron isn't going to fuse or fizz and uh, it just collapses and uh with un- un- unbeknownst to the star <laughs> okay and uh, a type 2 supernova, type 1 supernova, are the ones they use for a distance scale. That's right. Um, they uh, they are caused by uh, accretion of gas onto a white dwarf. And the white dwarf gets to be 1.4, 1.38 solar masses and then just explodes. That's right. Uh, there's, yeah. not, there's no remnant left anymore. Okay. So anyway. So there's a difference uh, between the two. And, and the light curves look differently. Uh, a type. Two supernova doesn't have um, hydrogen so let's, in its that, ejecta.
1: Let's uh, yeah. wrap this up with the uh, Betelgeuse. But, but but one last question. We're getting so, ahead of the game. Here, so, so the um, although you never know. <laughs> so the so in anyway with the Betelgeuse, uh, this uh, paper posits that this was ba- basically dust uh, uh, inter- yes. intervening with our line of sight of the star itself, and that produced the, the dimming. And um, you know, b- the bottom line is. Um, This was a kind of a random, strange event. I mean, it's not something that you could predict, right? Right. Right. Okay.
0: Although, I have to say, it isn't verified. You know, there are other ways of explaining what happened.
1: But I mean, Um, but if this is verified, uh, this would be just classified as a. It's not part of the of the known uh, of the stars' uh, normal behavior. It's just a weird uh, in 180 years, a weird event.
0: Yes, it's a weird event. No matter what, what the what what caused it, we have a different idea of what caused it. We think it's a supercell came up uh, like a giant granule and uh, then subsided, causing it to be dim because there's radial velocities. Huh? There's there's radial velocities. These are measuring the stars' expansion and contraction are taking place at the same time. Right. The other place against the dust is that there's no change in the IR the, 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 infrared. the in, 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 infrared or the molecules around, which should have changed. So there's nothing there that starts to stagnate like it, nothing happened. Dust blocks light, but it does re-emit in the IR region. And it has to get out somehow. So in other and words, even was, though you're on infrared the, uh, observations during this time, and there's no change. There should have been a brightening. So no, even wasn't.
1: so, even though you are on the paper, <laughs> which this yeah. press release well, re- re- uh, is... Uh, uh, is uh, you know, referencing you or this is not necessarily your preferred, uh uh, idea about what happened, what caused this dimming.
0: It's not my preferred idea, but it's it's a reasonable one. Okay. okay. All right. Well, that's I mean, cool. I don't, if I, if I completely disagree with it, I wouldn't be on, on, on the paper. It's okay. possible. Okay.
1: So, anyway, uh, Antares is uh, the second uh, nearest, uh, actually, it's actually the closest. It's probably, it.
0: it's probably nearer. Uh, yeah. Some,
1: 650 light years away in the co- constellation of Scorpius. Uh, it's actually, yeah, it is closer to the sun than than Betelgeuse. Uh, is there any any idea when Antares might go supernova?
0: No, no, it's it's about the same age. It's not as unstable. I mean, Antares only varies maybe two tenths, three tenths of a magnitude. That that's any ind- indication of you know when it's going to go. Uh, Antares is actually a better target uh, because it's in a cluster. It's in an OB OB. Um, it's called the upper scorpion obese association. So the distance of the cluster is known and the age is known. So Betelgeuse doesn't have that advantage. Betelgeuse's distance is not well known. And uh, so I, I like Antares better, but it doesn't have as much you know, history to it. Uh, people didn't start observing it until 1945 or so. We, we're, we're observing it. It doesn't vary as much. It's just as, as likely. To go, uh, Antares is often referred to as Betelgeuse's forgotten twin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, and you know what's wrong? It's in the southern hemisphere, and so it's not as well, you know, Matt, look- looked at than Betelgeuse is.
1: Okay, so what is the uh, secret lives of Cepheids
0: program? I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. It's a secret. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, I, I just had a drink of <laughs> wine. Uh, secret Life is, is just an, you know, in, in terms of the, uh, the astronomy world, you try to come up with a good, you know, title um, for your programs. And um, so we, we, called, we called that program The Secret Lives of Cepheids. And, and that was started by my student, that then student, he's now professor of Villanova, Scott Engel in the nineteen nineteen in the, in two, 2003 or four, that became his PhD thesis. And the secret lives part go, goes in, in that in 2008, 2009, we were examining x-ray images of Cepheids and he found that Polaris, which is the nearest Cepheid.
1: Yeah, we were, we were um, going to talk about that, but, but a classic, let me, let me just kind of give the audience a, sure. a, a definition yeah, a Cepheid of Cepheid. Is. The classical Cepheid variables are a well-studied class of pulsating yellow supergiant stars that are of fundamental importance to astronomy and cosmology. Uh, Edwin Hubble, in in 1926, determined the distance to M33 uh, by using 35 Cepheids, he discovered. Uh, Can you explain how he used the the Levitt Law uh, to do so?
0: Okay. Um, Cepheids are F to G, maybe some are K, they're cool spectral types, giants. Spectral types F to G. Spectral type of F that means their temperatures are like seven thousand. Uh, that would be an F F star to um, five thousand degrees Kelvin on their surface, and they're in what's called the instability strip in the uh, Hertzsprung Russell diagram. They're in a place where luminosity and temperature, where they're not stable and they pulsate. So they're pulsating variables discovered you know, in the Late 1800s, and Henrietta Leavitt, the uh, Harvard observed, um, found these stars in the Magellanic Clouds because uh, they could see the whole, a whole group of them, and you could see the light curves. They have a sharp rise in light. They have a slower decline, and their periods are like four days to about twenty days. What's significant about them? What the what it used to be called the period luminosity law, but because Henrietta Levitt discovered it about 10 years ago. They renamed it the Levitt Law. She discovered that there's a relationship between the luminosity of the star and the period. The more luminous they are, uh, the longer the period. And that's because that's the way stars pulsate. If you have a more luminous star, it means its radius is bigger and it's less dense. So the pulsation of a star generally depends on one over the square root of the density of the star. So you can imagine, as the star gets bigger, you know, radius is bigger, its density is going to go down. Mm-hmm. So that's why that's where it comes from. Um, so the uh, that's what defines the period luminosity law. Long period, more luminous; short period, less luminous. And they follow a pretty strict relationship between those two parameters. So it makes them useful for determining uh, distances. So this is how this is what. Hubble did. So he took. Uh, he was observing M33 with the uh, 200 inch. Uh, no, not sorry, 200 inch. 100 inch, and he found the, you know these stars, and they had the characteristics of the Cepheids seen in our own galaxy, which obeyed the period-luminosity law. And he took. He made light curves and found some several of them, 20 of them, or 35 of them, maybe total um in there and he was able then to use them as light bulbs if you know the period you know it's a Cepheid um use the inverse square law of light and you can find the distance that's what he did so they're they're distance indicators you measure the period uh you measure the apparent magnitude that is how bright the star is in your telescope and then you apply the period luminosity relationship and you find out how far away they are and so that's they are the backbone of the extragalactic distance scale. Okay. Because of this famous period luminosity law, now known as the Levitt the Levitt law.
1: And so a press release. Uh, so Delta Cephei is the uh, prototype of all the Cepheids, if I'm not incorrect. You're uh, exactly right. Uh, so a press release notes that the surface of Delta Cephei reaches supersonic speeds of about 82,000 miles per hour. While the star shrinks and grows by roughly two million miles during each pulsation period, I, I don't I don't know who made those measurements, but, uh, but I think
0: I think my student. Did. Oh,
1: okay. Uh, so, although,
0: how, although it's been measured previously, how yeah. how do you uh, measure they such They have things? light that's, variations. That's incredible. How do you measure it? Um, and they have you take radial velocity. That's where you measure the uh, Doppler shifts, and you can determine right. the speed. Okay. So that yeah. So they undergo. When the star is at maximum brightness, it's when it's smallest and has just contracted. So, um, so they put these together. You have the Doppler variation over the phase, mm-hmm. over the period of the star, and you have the light. And you can put those together and you can determine uh, uh, how the star is you know, contracting or expanding towards you. And you'll have on top of that what, what the brightness is doing. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, what, that's been, been done for over 100 years. Uh, that kind of work, okay. uh, since they were found to be uh, variable stars.
1: So let's talk about uh, Polaris, which is argu- arguably the the best-known Cepheid and the nearest Cepheid to us. Uh, it's a pole star, pretty much, uh, you know, if you go out on a dark night and and you let your eyes adjust, you can pretty easily find it. Uh, if you can still see
0: at night, <laughs> I can't. I, get in, where I can't. I can see very little. City, it's a second magnitude star. A lot of people think it's the, you know they mistake it with Sirius. They think it's no. a really bright star, but it's it's bright, but not. You no know, second magnitude is pretty good. That's right. But in the city, it's not so easy to see. No, no,
1: no. no. And the older you get, the the harder it is to see. Anyway, yes, so yes, it is. So. <laughs> so, as I I, know, I wrote in a 2009 article for Astronomy magazine, since the era of Persian astronomer al-Sufi in the late uh, 10th century, Polaris has argu- arguably increased its apparent magnitude from 2.85 to 2. That means it has become almost 2.5 times brighter and little more than a millennium. And, uh, Ed, so you spent uh, time in Iran actually poring over al-Sufi's uh, 960 A.D. readings of Polaris and noted that this pole star is much brighter than the third and fourth magnitude stars that make up the present-day Little Dipper. And furthermore, oh, if Polaris had been second magnitude during al-Sufi's time... It was, no, it was third magnitude during al-Sufi's time. Oh, okay. So, uh, if Polaris had been second magnitude during al-Sufi's time the uh, ancient astronomer would have likely recorded that way oh easily yeah So is that still correct?
0: Yeah it took some time you know I, I saw it's also uh, listed in the Almagest Ptolemy's Almagest right as a third magnitude star. Uh, these magnitudes are you know visual and their, you know have hers of half a magnitude because they're doing visual. Uh, observations of them, so I got a whole. I was curious about that because it's one of the few stars that's kind of way off. Um, most of the time, they're 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 pretty close to modern values. So I, I saw a copy, a modern copy of Al Sufi's book. Um, it's called the Fixed Stars, and but it was a copy. It was made in the 1400s. So I happened to be visiting. Uh, I lived in Iran for three years. So. Um, I can speak a little bit of Farsi and I know the customs I got friendly with one of my students uh, not friendly I knew one of the students and um, he arranged for me to see the original manuscript it's in it's underneath the uh, there's a city called Mashhad, which is in the eastern part near the Afghan border and that's where they have one of the holiest mosques it's to the Imam Riza he's like uh, maybe number two or three in, in Shia Um, you know in the Shia world Mm -hmm. so there's a giant mosque there it holds you know it's huge gold dome and it it can hold you know one point it can hold seven eight ten thousand people but this this manuscript was supposedly in there and so he got me uh, access to it I had to go through ritual you know washing and all that uh, Mm -hmm. to get in I had to be uh, wash my feet hands and all that and it was right. It was right under the tomb, which is you know, very unusual. So I went in the cellar of the place, and with the the father of my student, uh, the iman, allowed me in. And then uh, we actually found it. You know, it was not even kept very nice. It wasn't. You know, it was just sitting there. I had. It didn't take very long to find it. And it's written in old Persian, so I can read some modern Persian, but an old person the script is is different I can understand some things but not all so I had a student there who read it for me we found the page um it was fascinating to do this it was fun and I took a photograph I wasn't allowed to use well I was allowed to use a flash but I didn't because I didn't want to wreck it and uh, lo and behold I looked up um Betelgeuse, not Betelgeuse, this is Polaris. I also looked at Betelgeuse while I was there too. Uh, and it was listed as third magnitude three. Uh, there's a, the Arabic uh, letter uh, for, for three is pretty easy to figure, to, to see. And then I, I looked at annotations, if there's any annotations and things like that. So Sufi gave colors of stars. So I, while I was there, I spent time looking at other things.
1: So at that point, and, it was a third magnitude star, which is
0: less bright than it is today. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Today it's second and, but getting fainter uh, photometry carried out over the last 40 years shows it to have gone from about 1.95 to, to two, Okay, uh, a little bit old. So it looks like it's sorry. looks like, sorry, it's getting brighter. It went from second magnitude to one, 1.9. So we don't, we don't know, you know, you're, you're judging someone's estimate and uh, a very reliable observer. I mean, Uh, He was better. Sufi was better than Ptolemy. I thought it was just a copy.
1: And when was this? Uh, uh, When you were actually there and reading, you were living there. This is during the time. Yeah, I wasn't living
0: living there then. I lived there during the nineteen seventy-five to seventy-eight. I left right as the revolution was starting. Good gosh! I I probably overstayed my stay there because the revolution was starting. You know, tear gas and things like that were going on. Right. Uh, so I went back for you know I couldn't go back after the revolution for a long time. Uh, I went back in 1998, and then there was a meeting in 2003 in Mashhad, and that's when I decided, and that's when I was getting interested in Polaris. And that's how I decided. You know, while I was in Mashhad, maybe I could get in to see the original book, and and I did. It took a lot of trouble. I about a year ago I saw it online. <laughs> you know, oh. it saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> before and then you know it was, you go to al-sufi you do and it has all the pages I, I kind of it was kind of neat how they modernized in the last uh, 20 years so the bottom line uh, is uh, in terms of asterisk. bottom line is it when it appears to have gone from third to second unless there's some you know and, and also you have to watch out when you're using old uh, observations you have to Compare them. You you take all the stars around Betelgeuse and around Betelgeuse is on I might. Polaris. Around Polaris, right? And you look at the what he measured, and you look at the modern value, and you transform it. It's like doing comparison stars. Okay. So instead of being three, it came out to be 2.8 or 2.75 when you took the average. So what he called a third magnitude star, in our System is really like two point seven magnitudes, so right. you have to do all this work. Once but, you, when you, uh, once but when you
1: but when you do, do see Polaris, I mean, um, mm? what people they, when when the average person does spot Polaris, um, you know, out out in their backyards or out in, in a dark field at night, uh, what they probably don't realize is that Polaris has a has a, a periodicity a pulsation periodicity of three point nine seven days. Is that is that
0: is that right? Yes, yeah, three point nine eight. Now its period's getting longer. Oh, okay. Uh, and, yeah, and, and, and we wouldn't notice the variation. The variation is like 5%. It, it, in the 90s, it almost stopped pulsating. There's a paper out called Goodbye Polaris, <laughs> the Cepheid. It was uh, the pulsation uh, 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 range kept getting smaller and smaller during the 80s. And it was predicted in the '90s to stop, but it didn't stop. And it went down to like a you know one one percent variation, and it start to come back up again. So
1: what's for the unknown, why unknown reasons? Why the brightening? Why has it been
0: brightening over the last? Why months? is it right? I don't know. Um, if it's real, it might be that it's in a stage of evolution that isn't picked up. The models that are run for these kind of stars have. Um, I say gaps and uh, intervals. Um, they're done in like one thousand or ten thousand year jumps. You know they don't they don't model every year. So it might be something that's going on that's uh, you know in on, on a scale of a thousand years, which models wouldn't pick up. It would smooth them over. Okay. So we we don't have the solution to that. It's still a mystery.
1: So, um, um, but within a few million years, uh, regardless of whether it's dimming or brightening, Polaris will have moved on from being our pole star. And uh, will will eventually end its life as a dying white dwarf. Um, so by that point, um, what will be yeah, the right. what mm-hmm. will be the uh, what will replace Pol- Polaris as our pole star? What will uh, be the next pole star?
0: Several stars moved in uh, four thousand years ago. It was Alpha or Beta Draco. That's when they built built the pyramids. <clears throat> so this is called precession. It's because the Earth's axis is precessing in a twenty five twenty three thousand year period. Eventually switched over, switches over to Vega and things like that. So, on, in, in time, and it, it isn't actually nearest. It gets the nearest it gets to the pole is like a quarter degree, in about a hundred years, 80, 80 years, it gets that way. We had a cool thing going on where, um, in Julius Caesar, you know, uh, it's referred to you know as constant as the North Star, mm-hmm. and. In Caesar's time, there wasn't a North Star. So when Shakespeare wrote it, he was referring to, you know, it became the North Star about 800 years, years ago. But during Julius Caesar's time, which is 2,000 years, years ago, there was no star sitting at the, the pole at that place. So, And the Romans used like a, a series of stars in, or some minor to determine the, where the pole is, that's kind of cool. I thought that was cool. No, I think I think it's um, fascinating.
1: And the other thing is, if we hadn't have had during the Age of Discovery, uh, during the uh, 16th century, if we hadn't had uh, Polaris as a as a pole star, we may not have. Uh, you know, it, it would have been a lot tougher for. I don't know. I'm just speculating. No, you're,
0: you're, you're, you're exactly right. Some people believe it was. You know, it made the Northern Hemisphere people more. Because uh, they had a pole star, you know, an actual star that was so... It so made navigation a lot navigation. easier. navigation in the yeah. Southern Hemisphere, there isn't one. Right, that's right, you know? yeah. yeah.
1: So, anyway... So, uh, maybe
0: that was an advantage to Northern Hemisphere seafarers mm-hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere. But I learned later on that the Polynesians had a pretty good system. They didn't really need a particular star at the South Pole. They used a group of stars.
1: Well, it was interesting uh, to me while I was doing research uh, years ago for an article is that the air force had a satellite which uh, was uh, observing uh, Polaris and I guess uh, I guess you know both the navy and the air force uh, still you know relies on uh, celestial navigation in case uh, you know everything else goes haywire I mean,
0: I, I I've read sure. That. I, I it, if someone true. blows up a bomb um, in Absolutely. space, that's the end of all your communication. So you're back to uh, you know uh, sextants and things of that. That's sort. So there's always someone on a ship that knows how to do this. That's right. Uh, yeah. Just that's in case, worst case scenario.
1: And they actually have a catalog of the most. Re- that's what the uh, USNO, the uh, US Naval Observatory, does. Is uh, they keep yes. a record of all this. Um, so anyway, since we're talking about bright nearby stars, let's not forget Sirius, which you mentioned, the, the brightest star in the night sky. Uh, tell us a bit about the components of the Sirius system because uh, and uh, the controversy over its color. At one point, someone misinterpreted a text you said that remarked that Sirius was a red instead of blue-white is actually an A-spectral type star, which is one of the hot O, B, and A stars.
0: Okay, yeah, everybody knows. Sirius is the brightest star in the southern, in the night sky. I use this as a trick question. I say, What's the brightest star in the sky? Students answer the sun. They answer Sirius and it's the sun. So it is the brightest star. It's brighter than anything else. It's 1.5 magnitude, minus 1.5 magnitude. It's an A star. Our color system is based on it. It's fairly constant in light. Um, It's young. It's uh, 200 and something, 250 million years old and things like that. It's twice the mass of the sun. So that's its stats. Uh, it's it appears its name Sirius. The word seer might come from this. It comes. It means scorching, and so because of its brightness and the place in the sky it is, it, it's very important in in, in history. Um, the Egyptians uh, used it um, as their calendric star. It's called helical rising. They they look in, in middle of July, the star rises and that would be the beginning of their their new year. And then they could count the number of days to the next rising and it turned out to be 365 and a quarter days. So that was allowed them to determine the length, length of the year better than anybody else and earlier than anybody else. Uh, it's And the other thing that comes about in Greeks, uh, it's called the... You know, it's also called the dog star because it's the head of uh, Canis major. Um, they called the dog, you know you heard of dog days of August. Absolutely. and that's these are days. Um, it comes from reference to to Sirius uh, being around when it's starting to get to get hot. The Egyptians used it partly not not partly, but entirely to predict. Uh, the flooding of the Nile. The Nile would tend to flood around that time of the year. It would flood in July, August, when the waters from the central part of Africa started to fill in. So it was their predictor of the, of the Nile with the silt, you know, and all that. So it was related, related to fertility because it left rich soil for things to grow in. So it's, it's a very important star in a lot of uh, cultures over, because it's, it's so, so bright, it's an obvious star. And uh, But
1: it has a white so dwarf it, companion,
0: uh, right? So no, the companion, the white dwarf companion was discovered in the 1860s. Uh, it was predicted, it was actually inferred uh, 20 years before that, when they saw that Sirius's, Sirius A, we'll call it, this is the A star, uh, its motion was wiggling, and what causes that would be another star. Uh, so it had a proper motion that showed changes. And like 20 years later or so... Uh, Alvin Clark, of Alvin Clark Telescope fame, was testing his telescope and he spotted it. You know, it's, it's blue like Sirius itself, blue-white, but very, very faint, like its eighth magnitude. So it's much, much fainter. And then that's where the description of a white dwarf comes along, because it, the only way you could explain its um, faintness and having the same temperature or color was the star was much smaller. And it's, it's actually about the size of the Earth so that's the system it orbits. It has a uh, uh, it has a what? An orbital period of 50 years, and now's a good time to observe the white dwarf because it's it has an eccentric orbit, and right now it's at apastron or near apastron, mm-hmm. so it's like you no know, 10, 12 seconds away from uh, from Sirius A. Uh, they, they call it Sirius B, is what the white white dwarf is. So white dwarf is another thing comes about. This is where the controversies are coming in. A white dwarf star. Um, it, it had to be, to be a white dwarf, it had to go through a red giant phase. So Sirius A, the one you see, uh, the A star, um, is, is two, two um, solar masses. So the other star, the white dwarf, to be, you know, to be more, evo- is more evolved, had to be more massive. And they can estimate how massive it was by the, by the mass of the white dwarf. This white dwarf is not normal. I mean, and it's unusual because it's one solar mass where most white dwarfs are like a half to 60% of the mass of the sun. So it had to originate from a fairly massive star. And, and people have actually studied that from the cooling time. And uh, white dwarfs cool down. You can tell their age when they formed because mm-hmm. they get colder with, with age. Right. And uh, so they estimate it was a, originally a 5 solar mass star. And it evolved faster uh, than, the, than the bright star you see today. And it went to the red giant phase and had a planetary nebula. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, the nebula dispersed. So, for a time, it must have been, no, this is millions of years ago, tens of millions of years, years, years ago, it must have been pretty bright because it was a red a red giant. So, how close
1: uh, is it to uh,
0: Sirius, the, the white door? A uh, few AU. Um, let's see, I, I, I don't know exactly, no. Oh, uh, it's somewhere. Good I Lord. made so It's a, it's a very memorable. So it's a very it's, tight it's binary near nearby, like four or five AU's.
1: So it's a very tight binary system. That's incredible.
0: Yeah. So it's around there. It's four or five AU's, maybe five. So uh, what effect do uh, you think? I I have it. It's seven AU. Seven AU. So so do you think? I'm cheating here. I made a little cheat sheet, so I can remember all of his properties because I don't really study Sirius.
1: Okay. So Uh, so but uh, you you know, just last question about Sirius, uh, and and that is uh, so back when the uh, progenitor of the white dwarf uh, was a supergiant. Would it have affected uh, Sirius because Sirius was so close?
0: Yes, it did. Uh, Sirius is polluted. Sirius is called a metal rich star. And it's because when the red dwarf, when the red dwarf, when the red giant, when it was in the red giant phase, it was losing lots of mass of processed material that the star made in its interior. Mm-hmm. So Sirius, uh, Sirius itself. Has you know, double, three times as much mass uh, ma- uh, element, massive elements as the sun does. It's called a metal-rich star, mm-hmm. and the uh, explanation for that is that this material came from the red, the red giant, as it, as it lost most of its mass. And it's down to one solar mass now. In the beginning, it had five, so it lost five solar masses, and some of that was created by, um, by by Sirius. Okay. So at one point, you know, it was. Uh, the white dwarf was the more massive bright star. It evolved more quickly, went through all of its processes of life: red giant, planetary nebula, and now it's a, a fairly hot white white dwarf. It's like twenty five thousand uh, degrees. Okay. Uh, so you know a lot about the system because it's a binary. Fifty years. That means you can study it, and they know the masses and uh, very uh, very precisely, and ages to the to the system.
1: Okay, so uh, last thing about Sirius, we didn't cover the color controversy. Okay,
0: go ahead. Yeah, uh, it's one of the and colors are hard in the ancient world. Uh, people had different ideas what you know red and orange and blue were. But in Ptolemy's catalog, it's one of the stars along with Betelgeuse and Arcturus that's listed as red or orange, and uh, so that led people to believe that. Uh, 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years years ago, uh, the white dwarf was going through the red giant phase, and thus would look red. But it would also be very, very bright, which isn't isn't uh, isn't noted. So some papers came out on uh, one or two papers came out claiming that um, it was a red to explain the red the color. It was a red um, giant then, and. Uh, so the one them I think one got published in a reputable journal. It, turn, it turns out that's way off you know the, that's only two, 2500 year, years ago. So all the, uh, the, the, the time it takes for the white dwarf to cool down the cooling ages are you know, 100 million years. And there also if it was that, that near only 2,000 years ago, the planetary nebula you know remnant, would still be seen, so that that lasted for like that con- controversy was around for a few years. Okay, and there were some people who, who who you know who published that and promoted it, but it's all but it's all but that. Okay, so, gotcha. All so, right. so you might want to that right. part. Okay,
1: all right. So let's uh, move on uh, to the uh, to astrobiology in a sense, the search uh, uh, for planets uh, around other other solar systems, and also which type of star. Is best suited uh, uh, for planets that might har- uh, harbor life, and uh, in your Goldilocks program at Villanova, you note that there are three times as many K dwarfs in our galaxy uh, as stars like our sun. Roughly a thousand K stars lie within a hundred light years of our sun as prime candidates for exploration. These so-called orange dwarfs live from 15 billion to 45 billion years. And by contrast, our sun, now, now already halfway through its lifetime, lasts only 10 billion years. So K-stars um, are only 80% of the sun's mass and cooler and uh, may actually be best for long-term civilization.
0: What are your thoughts? Well, exactly right. We, we have programs at Villanova that go on you know, starting 25 years ago. One's called the Sun in Time. Where we studied the properties of slower type stars. Yeah, we're going to get and, to that.
1: Go ahead. Hmm? We're going to get to that later, but go ahead. The, oh, I'll
0: just quick, and yeah. and then we had a, a program funded by NASA for a long time, called uh, Red Red, dealing with red red dwarfs and their habitability. And uh, then it got to be like red dwarfs are are nice targets. There's lots of planets around them, uh, but because they're so dim. You have to stay you have to be very close to the star. Like I would say like a 20th of an 8 AU. you have to be like well inside Mercury's Mercury's orbit uh, to be warm enough to have liquid water. Uh, and, and also M stars, I mean I'm, I'm stabbing myself on the back in some ways because I still study M stars and still get funding for them. <laughs> but I'm beginning to, we're beginning to wonder whether the activity of uh, being so close to you have to get so close to the star, you're tidally locked. And these stars are not like, um, they they flare a lot. They're very active. They have deep convective zones, uh, which produce a a fair amount of of magnetic activity and resulting flares and coronal mass ejections and things like that. That A nearby star, a nearby planet, just could be zapped, you know, in the early, in the first half, in the first billion, two or three billion years of its life could have its atmosphere if it had one stripped away the water evaporated away and things like things like that so we became a little bit you know sanguine about whether m stars make good hosts even though they live trillion years you know and things like that they have a very long uh, lifetime because their masses are low
1: so you became a bit dubious about what... Uh, yeah, I became... They...
0: I still am. I'm still, You never know. You know, things... Planets have strong... If these planets have strong magnetic fields... But not to, digre- we don't know, you but know, not to digress. not know There could be extremophiles. There could be... Right, yeah. You know, life forms that like being x-rayed. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. But, you know, there... Are, but not to digress. I mean, we've we digressed <laughs> a lot. <laughs> but not to digress too much. But there is still a lot of research going on on the... You know, why... Planets around M-dwarfs, these red dwarfs, uh, would make, uh, you know, people are arguing arguing to the hilt about about why, you know, they could still host life or extremify oh, bacteria. Yeah. And, and uh, it, it's tempting just to say, hey, okay, you know, but let, let's look at the K-dwarfs. So, well,
0: here's, here's, here's how, how it goes. You know, the only example of life is, you know, earth around a g type star right and so you have to have to give them you have to give g, g stars you know the, a lot of credit because they're the only example so far and m stars have there's so many of them you know the 70% of all stars are m stars so maybe just a fraction of the planets you know around m stars there some way like the extremophiles life makes it lives under oceans or you know under the oceans and things of that sort on the dark side of the planet So you get into G, the problem with G stars, if there's a problem at all, is that the habitable zone is around, you know, one astronomical unit out to about one and a half. That's like sort of where Earth and out where Mars, that's where you would have liquid water if you had, uh, you know, Mars would have liquid water. It did have it once if it had a greenhouse effect. So the trouble with them is that G stars do evolve. They do change. So
1: last question about uh, the K stars, because two nearby Uh, for the listener, the two nearby K-Stars, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Iridani, uh, yep. were early targets of the 1950s uh, Project, Project OSMA, uh, initiated by Frank Drake. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Frank Drake uh, you, you know, used one of the radio telescopes at the, at the Green Bank Observatory uh, and turned it on uh, Tau Ceti. That was the first uh, Ceti effort. Uh, Very good a, choice. A, a K star, <laughs> yeah. an orange, or, an orange uh, uh, dwarf. So, um, do do either of these stars, Tau Ceti or Epsilon Eridani, have planets? do we know? Yeah, both, they- both do. Okay.
0: Um, the only trouble with Tau Tau Ceti is near the age of the Sun. It's actually a G8 K0 star. So, um, its lifetime is about 20 billion years. Uh, it it looks like it has three or four planets. Um, and one or two of them are in the habitable zone where you can have li- liquid water. Epsilon Eridani, which ties in with Star, star Trek in some ways, because it was always thought to be where Spock, uh, where Vulcan was. <laughs> it, it's, it's a young star. So it has a planet, but it's not in the habitable zone. And also the system is very young. So there's still like, you know, asteroid. It's sort of... Uh, what's happening there you're in the stage of the great bombardment and what happened on the solar system when uh, there were lots of asteroids hitting all the planets and planet formation was going on so I don't expect to find any you know life around Epsilon Eridani but um, Tau Ceti yes it's um, it's older um, as long as the planets are I'm not completely convinced the planets are real but people are working on it Mm -hmm. Uh, that would be a nice a nice place the, the difference in this stuff is that what you find is that um, the sun's fine. Uh, it's just that you have to worry about that where, where you are, your, your distance is fixed. And as time goes on, they evolve. You That's know, right, and yeah. The sun's getting bigger. And eventually, at, you know, in 9 billion years, it starts to become a red red giant. So the game game's over.
1: So in 2016, you worked with a European team to study the potential habitability of the nearest Earth-sized planet. Proxima Centauri b, which orbits Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the sun, uh, which is only about 4.25 light years away. And you noted in a press release that the planet that now could be like Mars, dry, cold, thin, uh, or no atmosphere, Venus, hot, thick carbon, atmosphere, no water, not viable to support life, or an ocean planet like the Earth. And these possibilities have not been ruled in or ruled out. What do we know about this planet now? Four years later, has anything changed?
0: Not much has changed. There's a lot of um, uh, you don't know the initial conditions. You don't you know the planet is in the habitable zone now, so the planet would have it would be uh, liquid water. It's a little bit bigger than the Earth. Um, you know, not much. It's very close to the Earth in size. Uh, what you don't know is going to be tidally locked. So one side will be facing the star, the other side will be in darkness. Uh, So you have to consider that. It all depends on the initial, did the planet have water inventories while this was going on? You know, when the planet was forming, did it have water to start with? Uh, If it did, it may have been evaporated away when the star was contracting to the main sequence. And when um, this was... um, When Proxima Centauri was young, it was spinning fast, very active, had lots of flares, and it would have been, you know, it it could have had um, its atmosphere blown off. So that's why there's a lot of uncertainties and whether it's uh, a cold planet, dry planet like Mars, because that's in a case where uh, the, the atmosphere was blown off, the water was blown off, and it was never... Water, water did not come in from comets and things like that. It was not re, the water was not replenished, is what they say. Okay. So it, it's it's you don't know. All you know is that that planet is in the right place. I'd rather it be a little bit further out, but it, it's in the habitable zone. Uh, but you don't know the initial con- conditions, and it had to go through hell for its first billion, two billion years, because red dwarf stars, and that's a pretty active red dwarf stars. Are, uh, have X rays, winds, UV emission, and that planet is only 0.05 astronomical units away. That's like you know that's like f- uh, five million um, miles from the surface of the of the red red dwarf. So it's getting it's getting irradiated and uh, hit you know by lots of UV and pl- plasma. So you have to hope that uh, the planet had very strong magnetic fields. That it isn't you know to make it. Earth, that's how Earth survived. It had strong magnetic fields. That's right. how because the Sun went through these kind of phases too when it was young. There is another planet around that system, uh, further out. Right. That's um, not published yet um, by the same. I got a private communication on it because I may have seen that planet uh, 25 years ago. And, and is that
1: have, is that planet uh,
0: uh, any more suitable for life than Proxima? No, Centra? it's worse. It's cold. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, uh, okay. I mean, it, it's you'd have to have life, it have to be heated by internal by uh, radioactivity. So we will you know, soon up, be up the The, the good, the, the news about this
1: is are new breaking news on this show uh, that uh, pretty soon we're going to hear about
0: in the media. Uh, Proxima Centauri C, right? Yeah, I don't want to say too much more because uh, they're they're working on a press release. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was inferred from the first paper when they did it. They saw another wiggle. And it's pretty far out. I can't okay. remember I'm glad I can't remember because maybe I would tell you and I'm not supposed to talk much about it okay. uh, it's it's pretty far out you're talking like a few uh about where the earth is from a distance one au or something like right like that which means it's around a red dwarf like that it would be really cold you'd be looking at you no. Know, uh, it would get as much light as, as Pluto gets so it would be a very cold inhabitable planet but it could stabilize it's it's one of the one of the neat things is that you could image it
1: Okay, so two it's last so far
0: points. away that you could actually, you could actually see, it animate. would be many arc seconds away from the star that you could see it you could uh, you you could isolate it from the brightness of the of, of the star.
1: So two last points about this uh, Proxima Centauri B. Uh, you did say that uh, even now it's t- uh, still tidally locked, right? Yes, uh, which means that uh, only one side uh, one side is always uh, exposed to the uh, to the star on the other side is uh is uh, is dark is that right? Dark. You're right okay mm-hmm. so i mean even with the best uh, the most optimistic climate models uh that doesn't seem like a recipe for life to
0: me right um not necessarily true because we had we had stars when we first began the studies of red dwarfs trying to get money for them in the 2000 uh we got laughed at that first of all they they would be too small to have planets that are worthwhile. And secondly, they'd be tidally locked and one side would sublimate out, one side would, if it had an ocean, it would just freeze out on the dark side and the other side facing would be a desert. But it turns out if they have oceans or an atmosphere, like an atmosphere like, you know, one bar, a bar is what the atmosphere of the earth is, even like two tenths of a bar, there would be circulation you know, the hot side would be like a low pressure system. Uh, uh, air would rise there and then it would be um, attracted or fall. It would go around and fall into the, the cool side. And there would be a circulation pattern from uh, air rising out of the, the hot side creating a low pressure where it would pull uh, air cold air in from the, the dark side and create a circulation pattern earth has earth has this between the pole and the equator mm-hmm. uh, it has it in three cells so there were models run that if the planet had an ocean or it had an atmosphere or both the circulation would make the planet more moderate you could live, Probably on the dark side, but it would be warmed by having uh, warm ocean water come in from the lit side, and you'd have air, uh, warmer air, streaming in uh, to make it so we know so it wasn't like you no know, minus, <laughs> minus 60 degrees uh, gotcha, C. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So nowadays they 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 the tidal locking doesn't seems like it might help. Rather than hurt, because as long as the, if it did sublimate out, then you would just have ice on one side. And uh, now okay. it looks like as long as you can have some, an ocean circulation, and if you have air, uh, an atmosphere not so thick, a tenth of a bar to a bar, mm-hmm. same as the Earth, right. it would circulate around mm-hmm. and make it more even, more moderate. So, right. and also you could live on the you can live on the boundary, but then you might have winds, right. like you might have strong winds blowing from the ones, from the from one side to the other. But so, it's pretty uh,
1: incredible I mean to think, you know, think about it now. We're in a, a sea of red dwarfs that's re- literally the truth. Billions of stars in our galaxy, hundreds of billions, trillion stars in the universe and the very next star over, the, the our nearest star already we we know today has two planets. And one yeah. might possibly be habitable i mean that just shows Mm -hmm. you how robust that's mind-blowing mind-blowing and it shows you just how robust the the physics
0: behind planetary formation actually is all right let me go back i think almost every star has planets (laughs) so you're you're looking at uh you're maybe looking at like uh 60 70 or 80 percent of all stars have planets that's what that's what kepler showed is that this is um a to, a to Earth uh, project is that when they did a, st- a statistical study, something like uh, two out of uh, half or 30% of red dwarfs have planets. Right. You know, it's pretty high. So there's going to be a lot of planets sitting around. The next star out, uh, Barnard's star, has a planet. So planets are very common. You know, they're just that's what that was the main um, I would say that was the main discovery of the Kepler mission, the original one, Absolutely. was to find out. No, in the in the Drake equation, what eta Earth is the fraction of planets that have have sorry the fraction of stars that have planets.
1: So we're coming to the end of the podcast, but let me before we do, let's get back to our own star for a minute. And your your uh, well known Sun and Time project. It's a twenty year observing program that used nearby solar analogs as proxies to model the sun through time. What's the status of this?
0: Well, it's nearly completed. Uh, we've been doing this for 1990, and the name. Some people think I copyrighted the name "Sun in Time," <laughs> and I tell them, "Yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh, again. And <laughs> when you're doing projects and you're trying to get funding, it's always good." It's like a movie name or a book name, book title to have a good name for your uh, project right. And uh, so that was the first time I ever did that was with the Sun in time And now it's like you know they <laughs> people think it's a copyrighted name. I wish it was it were I got it from a conference I attended in Arizona in 1989 and I just said, oh, let's call it the Sun in time you know and then uh, it worked it worked out. So it, as you notice, you know secret lives of Cepheid's, Living with a red dwarf. All these things have catchy names because they tend to get uh, more attention and maybe more funding right, well, uh, when you're when you're trying to get money that, to oh, support these yeah. programs. Yeah. But so, so, so with but what, the sun and time, we're, we're we're what we found in that one. That has that's my most cited paper, I guess. Um, we we took stars of um, we got solar stars. Of different ages like the pleiades is 125 million years so we got g2 stars g5 stars in there and then the hyades and we took we tried to get a uh, trace back what the sun was doing because you can't do it theoretically in magnetic activity we knew you know what a star does when it's a nuclear evolution, but you're not you really can't model them theoretically uh, to go back. So it's like a time machine. So we took examples of young 100 million all the way up to older than the sun, 8 8 billion years old and got examples. And then we, they're all one solar mass stars. So we could see you know, what the sun was doing in, in time. And one of the things we found out because we observed these with Hubble and IUE and x-rays is that we're able to quantize uh, what the sun's a magnetic activity and X-ray and UV emissions were back to 100 million years ago, and then this is where I got into the astrobiology field. I was attending a conference in who knows um, Graz, uh, Austria, and then uh, I began collaborating with people there because they we had we had the tables, we had the irradiation tables. We we knew what the sun's radiation levels, X-ray and UV, and all that were uh, back back. You know, back in time so that was used in you know, I was a collaborator on a paper on Mars where this was used to determine uh, how much radiation, how much x-ray and UV radiation and winds Mars got through time and that's in that paper it was like 2003 um, mm-hmm. they figured out that uh, the x-rays and winds and all that were strong enough to, uh, to take the Martian atmosphere away and uh, that so that was the beginning of that, and did the same study with Venus, right? Um, and the Maven so data has uh, has borne that out, right?
1: Yes, yes, it's
0: yeah, it it's born out better than I ever expected. Yeah, Mars lost its uh, these uh, Mars. Uh, what killed Mars is its magnetic field. You were good until the magnetic field died. Mars has a had a magnetic field. It's generated from a core. Uh, Mars is a small planet, like one-tenth the mass of the sun. So its core, it's where the magnetism comes from, cooled off about a billion years in, into its life. And when that happened, its force field that protected it from the winds that picked up the ions and took the atmosphere away, uh, it was it was no longer protected, and it started to lose its atmosphere at a fairly large rate mavens finding that you know it doesn't have much atmosphere now now but it's losing it and mainly it broke up the water molecule and the hydrogen atoms were carried off and then the oxygen heavier um stayed behind so that was our conclusion is that it should the iron that you find there the iron oxides the oxide the ox oxygen came from its original water atmosphere and that's been borne out. Um, it's one of my favorite papers. I didn't know, you know, I didn't know much about planetary atmospheres and loss until that. Till that, I started working with the group in, in Graz. Okay. And then they did it again on Venus. And then we decided to publish a table where you could just go in and read off, you know, what the sun's or any solar stars' radiation was uh, in X-ray or UV. they are the important ones. Uh, what X-rays do is they ionize. Uh, they just they ionize the atoms and the UV will excite them and uh, the plasma uh, pulls pulls them off. Right, and that's okay. what Maven's finding for Mars. Gotcha. It's happening with Earth. So Earth made it through all this because it had a magnetic field that was sustained. Right, I and got Venus you. didn't. Venus didn't have a magnetic field. Maybe because it spins slow. We don't know the reason, but um, when they use these when they use these irradiances of the sun. Um, Oh, Venus, uh, Venus was okay for a little while until it lost its magnetic field. Maybe there was an interaction with another planet that slowed it down. Um, whatever happened, uh, but that's what happened with Earth, That's what happened with Mars now. The, its protective magnetic field just died off after a billion years, and then the water started to escape, and then. The greenhouse effect diminished, and fortunately, and, and we were doing the modeling. I wasn't doing this modeling, I'm not an expert in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found that it cooled down so fast that not, fortunately, not all the water blew off. A lot of the water turned out, uh, turned into ice, and okay. sunk into the bottom. And hopefully, it's still there,
1: anyway. Yeah, uh, it's still there. Let's yeah. uh get back to the uh, to the sun and um even though the sun is thought to be only halfway through its main sequence, hydrogen burning 10 billion year lifetime, the increasing luminosity over time will eventually trigger a runaway greenhouse. And and that could happen soon, perhaps uh, within the next uh, 500 million years. And uh, I quote you in one of my articles as saying, we're near the end of our ropes here now. And uh, it's interesting that you say that because... The mainstream astronomical community doesn't harp on that, and it, that was something. The five hundred year, uh, five hundred million year mark from now uh, seems to be, you know, seems important to me in a way that a lot of uh, earth scientists seem to underappreciate, and in, you know, because that's the fact that is that in five hundred million years' time we could basically disappear due to a lack of photosynthesis. I mean, am I am I wrong?
0: It's still not clear if it's a half billion years or one billion years. Okay. It's not exactly clear. Um, there's different models are running into this. Um, it's not my my work. I don't do work there. I do the um, I know how fast the sun everybody knows that. And there's just nuclear physics. The sun is getting it's increasing in luminosity about seven percent. Per billion years, so the sun, like if you go back four and a half billion years, was only sixty-seven percent of what it is today, okay. and, uh, and so it's getting more luminous, which means the Earth is getting hotter. But what drives this is interactions with the at- atmosphere—is what the uh, carbon dioxide and what how water react to this, and uh, that's where the there's not a settled there's not a settled idea of what particularly happens some people have this happening uh you know longer now like seven billion years and they also have the earth getting iced over somehow i i don't know i there's a new a new theory out that i saw Hmm. but the one i read about and that's this is like several years old i I mean i don't know when i said that it must have been uh five six seven years ago Mm -hmm. it was not my work it was the paper i cited and they 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 went they had a half a billion to a billion years from now, and it's 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 a greenhouse. It's a runaway greenhouse effect. Okay. So the um, and the that heating had, only and, heats up the earth a little a, bit, but it's enough to make the water get vapor right. a, vaporized, and the CO two comes out of the ocean, and then you get the the runaway greenhouse and um, a lot of photodissociation and, and basically yeah, photo that's dissociation. It. So,
1: um, you know, which means uh, you're basically, you're, you're losing uh, water molecules to space, right?
0: Yeah, water, uh, Earth is losing them now. If you go up to the, uh, there was a satellite that went, went went up to study something else, Aurora, I, think, I guess it was. And they found that the Earth has plumes of water vapor. Uh, well, no longer water vapor, but water uh, hydrogen uh, uh, blowing off, off the Earth like Mars does too. But in such small amounts that it doesn't make any difference. You know, we're not going to evaporate our oceans away.
1: What got you interested in astronomy, and when did you decide it would be your life's work?
0: I was interested in astronomy since I was like six or seven years old. And actually, it was Betelgeuse, (laughs) although I didn't know much. Um, I liked uh, the the winter sky. I used to go out with... uh, uh, and look at the sky and the constellations. This is like when I was a child it was like nineteen fifties. So and it was mainly what drove me was science fiction. Science fiction books, science fiction movies, uh that got me interested. That's a silly way, but that's sort of the avenue of the path that most astronomers have. Nowadays it would be like, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars. And that time it was uh before that, it was like Flash Gordon and War of the Worlds and you know, the red planet, angry red planet. Uh, that was my interest. And as, as you know, when I was like seven, eight, I built a telescope. And I mean, and I spied on neighbors. And then I used it you know, <laughs> to, to look at stars. Then I, I was building rockets, you know, like most kids were then. Mm-hmm. Some of them got quite big and dangerous. And that's where... Um, uh, that's what drove me in. Uh, my major reason is what happened, how I got into astronomy is um, it was the Vietnam War. I got out of Villanova as a physics major in 1964 and I was drafted and I really didn't want to go. I was, uh, took another route. I got accepted in, into graduate school and the first school to, and I applied to biophysics and I applied to physics, straight physics, and things like that. And the first school to accept me was for astronomy, and I took it. I never looked back. I mean, it's 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 fantastic. I'm still doing it in my 70s, so I don't I don't intend to retire. I intend just to go on. It's it's not a job for me. It's it's my it's my love. So, do you have a, a way that listeners can contact
1: you uh, if they want to comment or have questions uh, on I social media? My email account
0: or my I have a, f- a f- Facebook. Okay. I'm on Facebook, uh, Facebook. Edward uh, Guynon. Uh, yeah, there's no secret. Okay. Uh, and uh, email is uh, is my name, edward.guynon at Villanova. That's where I teach, Villanova.edu.
1: Anyway, as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at uh, brucedormanypodbean.com or be on my Twitter feed. Edward Guinan. Uh Let's hope that astronomical observations and operations will soon be back to normal and that you can can continue doing your great work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bruce. It was fun being on. Thanks for being part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy
0: with Bruce Dormini. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormini, or his regular post on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.